What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Andy Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here is always so that the rest of us can listen and learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful businesses. Joining me in today's episode is Matt Verlack, the CEO of a company called Uplaunch. He has one of the most unique origin stories for an indie hacker that I think I've ever heard. Matt was actually a career fireman for 10 years. He met his co-founder in the firehouse. He then learned to code, left his job as a fireman, and since then, Matt has successfully bootstrapped his company Uplaunch to over $65,000 a month in revenue. That's an amazing story. I think it exemplifies what's possible in the world that we live in today. So I'm excited to jump into it. Matt, welcome to the show, man. And thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited, Cortland. Thanks for having me, man. It took you about a year and a half with your very first tech business to get to the point where you're making $65,000 a month in revenue. That is no small feat. It's been quite the journey, man. It's uh, it's funny. It's just like a, a different lesson learned every day. But uh, just, yeah, super grateful for how things have been going so far. What's your favorite thing about finding yourself in this position in such a short period of time where you're running a very profitable, successful tech business? Honestly, there's two, you know. Um, so like we work with primarily independently owned and operated fitness facilities, you know, micro gyms, CrossFit gyms and things of that nature. And our big value proposition of the the thing that we do to help is that we help these gym owners run more profitable businesses by creating a world-class client experience and leveraging really strong relationships. And so really it's the same benefit, which is that we get to either directly or by proxy improve people's lives, you know, so we're, we're helping our direct customers, the gym owners be able to kind of systematize and, you know, run their business more efficiently. We're helping them deliver a stronger message to their customers. Then more recently, you know, as revenue has grown and we've started to scale a team, you know, we've seen the ability to like positively impact people who have joined our team and provide them with like a really healthy work environment, meaningful work where they're valued and making incredible contributions to the overall uplaunch ecosystem. So it's been a kind of a, a human oriented reward in all of the different areas, but uh, the, the team aspect of it is especially new and especially rewarding as well. Yeah. So for you, it's all about the people, the people you work with, the people that you work for, your customers. Totally. And it's the same for me too, with any hackers, which is funny because it's not, that's not what I predicted going into it. I thought a lot more about like the programming tasks and like my day-to-day work. But the reality is like my favorite part of my job is getting to meet all sorts of cool people doing cool things and just being friends with them. Yeah, definitely. It's like, you know, I mean, any business has to make money in order to survive and help people. That's kind of a a given. But I think getting past that, like it's not one of these things where like, oh, I got this idea. We're going to go make a billion dollars. Look at us. It was just kind of this thing that happened and caught a little bit of traction. So it's been a, it's been really cool to meet all the different people we've met and, and help all the different people we've helped. So it's been fun. So we've got to talk about your earlier career, at least a little bit, because quite frankly, (laughs) I don't know if I'm ever going to have an ex-fireman on the podcast again. What was your life like as a fireman and how did you get into that in the first place? Yeah, it was um, similar to the way that I got into uh, running a tech company. It was kind of just by uh, happenstance. You know, I started out as a volunteer firefighter and just kind of 
enjoyed it and started going to some additional schools, you know, got like my paramedic certification and, you know, thought it would be a, a good, meaningful way to, you know, spend a life. And, and it is, and it's interesting. Like I was really leaning into that career. Like I really enjoyed it. I'd gotten, you know, promoted and was in charge of a company, which was really rewarding, you know, a company, meaning like a, a small company of firefighters and all that was really, really good. The life is an interesting life. You know, it is pretty demanding from like a time standpoint. It's a the department I was working for is a 56 hour a week, not including overtime. And so you are away from your family a lot, which I didn't really care as much about until I got married and had kids. And then I kind of understood that like there are some other things uh, that I'd like to be doing as well. But even then it was just kind of the, you know, the life that uh, I was ready to have. And, you know, so I met Jake, my co-founder in the firehouse and, um, you know, Jake is, um, he was in the Marine Corps before the fire department as an infantryman and then joined the fire department. And it's always because of those roots been really into physical fitness. And so he opened up a CrossFit gym in his hometown of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And so that's really how this whole origin of the company began was just like Jake and I kind of true to form, hacking our way through different strategies or tactics to keep the marketing and outreach elements of his business afloat while we were at the firehouse for 24 hours at a time, 60 hours a week. And so it was kind of, you know, deconstructing and solving that problem that led to the proliferation of Uplaunch, you know, a couple of years after. Do you remember the point at which startups and tech and entrepreneurship first popped onto your radar as something that might be of interest to you? You know, I don't know that there was a specific inflection point where I was like, actually, this might be cool to do. It kind of got, um, you know, like there's a lot of firefighters with other jobs, right? Because, you know, we work a lot of hours and it's 24 hours at a time, but then you've got a few days off. And so initially it was one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I'm still going to do the fire department thing. And then I'm also going to run this company and everything is cool. And, you know, we grew it a little bit um, under that model. And it was just kind of one of those things where the business, like the growth that we were having and the demands, like if we really wanted to do this right, it was one of those things where eventually you just can't ride the fence anymore, you know, and I actually, uh, I credit my wife for kind of pushing me to make that decision as, uh, as many spouses do, um, where we, you know, we right after the birth of our second son and just had to kind of have the conversation where she's like, look, I don't really care which job you do. But if you could just pick one, like that would be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and so, uh, so she was kind of the catalyst for for me to think about, like, hey, maybe this is going to be something real where you know I can do it full time and it'll be my career. Um, and there were a lot of appealing things about that, right? I mean, you know, we're a fully distributed team. We all work from home. Um, it gives a little bit of, actually gives a lot of flexibility into the day-to-day. You know, I run a very outcome-driven team where I'm not really interested in time tracking or clocking in or any of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it does allow for, I don't really like the term work-life balance. I think more like work-life integration where, you know, your your job can fit your life and your life can fit your job. And so that was definitely appealing. And the other reality in the fire department, obviously, there's a lot of leadership lessons that can be gleaned from that career. And, you know, one of them is leading by example. And what that comes down to is if I can't bet on myself to like <laughs> dive in head first to this company, how could I ever ask anybody else to bet on our company, whether that's a team member or an investor or a customer or anything else? And so I said, if we're, if we're going to do this for real, then, you know, I got to I got to be on point. So let's go. <laughs> and I made the decision and uh, here we are. 
it's fascinating that you said that most firemen have other jobs because you have time off, you can fill however you want. But I think your story illustrates the times that we live in because even just a few years ago, I don't think people would have expected a fireman's other job to be starting a tech company. It's really one of the the most interesting things about the fire department is it's still like a vocation. You still have to do the work. You still have to break a sweat. You know, it's still like hard, dirty, sweaty, blue collar work at the end of the day, which I love, by the way. But um, at the same time, you're right. Like the, the times are different where, you know, like firemen have had part time jobs for decades. But, you know, it was painting or, you know, carpenters or doing things like that. And there's a lot of guys that still do that. And I've done part-time work like that as well. But I think when you look at, you know, there's a couple of factors, right? I think that the the talent pool that's applying to the fire department is a little bit different, you know, and, and more diverse interests than it has been in decades past. And also I think the access to this knowledge, you know, through the popularization of boot camps and things like Lambda School, which is totally groundbreaking the way they're doing things. I mean, there's a lot more access to be able to like develop your personal skill set. And then I think one of the results of that is in public service jobs like the fire department, you're seeing a more diverse set of skills within the the population that does those jobs. Yeah. I'm always sort of looking at macro trends. Like why are more people becoming indie hackers today than ever before? And I usually take kind of a top-down view where I'm asking questions like what resources are available today that didn't used to exist? How easy is it to learn how to code today? How expensive is it to put your website up on a server and host that? But it's interesting to hear your perspective because at the individual level, there's always some deeply personal story or reason why you decide to quit what you're doing and take a different path. I can only imagine. I haven't I haven't listened to a ton of, of Indie Hacker podcast episodes. I've listened to a couple. But in general, in the ecosystem, there's a lot of people that I think are like, oh, I, I hated my job doing XYZ. So then I decided to start my own business yep. you know, because I wanted to do something that gave me more gratification, right? Where I loved my job as a fireman. Like I, I was going to work for 33 years and maximize my pension. And I knew exactly what age I was going to retire at. And I had everything planned out because it's that kind of job, you know? And I mean, there were people who basically fell out of their chairs in astonishment when I told them I was leaving. And it's just, it's one of those jobs that, that you don't really leave. Like, unless you're kind of a, I don't know, it's a nice way to say this, a screw up. Um, or like, you know, someone who's not really like fully engaged in the job to begin with. Like most people get in that job. It's extremely competitive, which is another thing people don't realize. Um, you know, they hired 30 people off a list of 2,500 when I applied. So people don't leave. And so it was, it was definitely kind of an anti-pattern within that context too, to go do this other thing, leave one job that I loved for a, a big old question mark, <laughs> which was up lunch. So I've been into tech my entire life. There's never a point where you could have asked the people around me, hey, what does Cortland want to do? And they couldn't have told you exactly what I want to do. <laughs> what was it like for you being in the exact opposite situation? What was it like having these conversations where people were falling out of their chairs because you told them, hey, I'm pulling a 180 and quitting my job as a fireman? It was interesting, uh, to say the least. You know, I don't really know because I'm the kind of person where like, I'll really do my best to think through a decision from all the different angles. But once I make it, it's made. And so it wasn't really like, like I wasn't really in like feedback solicitation mode when I was telling people I was leaving. Like the decision was already done. I had maybe a, a dozen people who I trusted who kind of knew, you know, the guys that I supervised in the, in the fire department knew that I was thinking about taking this route. And then, uh, you know, I just kind of said, all right, well, let's go because yeah, it's risky and it's, uh, it might be a little crazy to like literally turn your back on a guaranteed pension for life to, you know, go do something that has an extremely high failure rate, meaning start a, a tech startup. But I'm not really a big fan of, of regret. 
or, um, you know, worrying about what ifs. So I uh, figured it was time to give it a whirl. And that was it. Like, I didn't really put much more thought into it. So before you had to tell people the results of your decision, you had this whole process where you had to actually make the decision to leave. I want to talk about what went into that process. And maybe the best place to start is sort of the origin story behind how you met your co-founder and how you guys first started working together. Yeah. So, um, so like I said, he started the gym and so Jake knew I was kind of like a secret nerd. (laughs) Um, you know, I'd done like a little bit of web design here and there. Um, and and it literally started out with him just asking me to build him a website for his business, for his gym. Again, kind of a cultural thing in, in the fire department. Like if you have a skill, you, you help the other guys and that's just what you do. And so, you know, we sat down and made a website. It was exceptionally mediocre because I, I wasn't the world's most you know, prolific web designer, but it got him started, gave him what he needed, got the gym off to, uh, to a good start and did a couple other jobs for some, some of his peers in the, you know, in the gym space. You know, it was interesting if you assess personality types, right? I'm more of like an, an implementer where I can take an idea and, and break it down into like the actionable steps and need to actually make it a reality. And I think part of the reason why Jake and I have a really good working relationship is because he is much more like the idea guy, right? Where like, hey, we can do all this stuff. And, you know, he'll kind of inspire me to go build a plan and we'll kind of meet somewhere in the middle. And so um, I remember this like it was yesterday. He hit me up and he's like, hey, dude, I need some changes on my website. <laughs> and we uh, he's actually sitting here next to me laughing right now. I'm telling the story. But uh, <laughs> so we went and had uh, had coffee one morning after we got off work in a fire department. And um, yeah, that conversation kind of transformed in this entire like, and, and there's probably people out there who can relate to this, right? Like we made before we got up from having coffee, like the most ridiculously complex business plan in the world. Like if there was something to be done that remotely pertained to a gym, we were going to do it. We were going to start this business. We were going to do web design. We're going to do business mentoring. We're doing marketing automation and copywriting and on like e-learning courses. And like, yeah, it's just two guys who'd never run an online business before. It sounds like a great plan, right? Um, (laughs) And so we, uh, we had this super complex plan and we were going to do all this stuff and we were both pretty fired up after that conversation, but then we actually tried to figure out how to take action on it. Right. And he like went from his, his world and the idea to my world and the, in the plan and realized that like, you, you just can't, you just can't do it that way. You know, you can't go from nothing to everything in a month. It's just not real. Um, we were pretty naive uh, early on. So from there, we kind of distilled it down and tried to find, you know, find the blue ocean, find the find the, the void in the market. And so we looked at those four different things we wanted to do, like web design. I wasn't that great at it. And there was a lot of people who were way better. So there's that, you know, the business mentorship was kind of the same thing. Like Jake runs a really, ran a really successful gym, but there were some outstanding business mentors already in the space. And then the one that we actually settled on where the market opportunity was, was marketing automation because there were tools out there for creators, but you know, for people who are small business owners, like if you want to legitimately implement a fully featured marketing automation solution, you have to do a lot of stuff, right? Like you have to know how to market. You have to know how to write copy. You have to know how to build a funnel. You have to know how to essentially program. Even if you're not writing code, you're still setting up like Boolean logic and campaign builders and all this, this stuff that like your normal gym owner has no time or interest, you know, in getting involved in. And so that was uh, was kind of how we settled on the direction of tackling the marketing automation problem. And yeah, and we kind of bailed on all the other stuff. The story of you guys meeting in a coffee shop 
and drawing up all these grand, unrealistic plans for all the stuff you're going to build is so familiar to me <laughs> because I did the same thing when I was younger. I remember before I really knew how to build a web app, I met this guy yeah. who was a developer and I really wanted to start a company together. And I drew up so many features with like no real conception of how long it would take to actually build them. Well, I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> no, you're definitely not alone there. And more to the point, I think this process of being at a place where you have a million and one things you want to do, you have the super ambitious vision, and you have to whittle it down and focus on just one thing that's going to work, that's really hard to do. Most people can never successfully accomplish that. How did you decide that marketing automation is where you wanted to focus your efforts? We knew that we wanted to implement it for Jake's gym. And so that's obviously where we started. I always joke around and called his his gym uh, the Petri dish because it's where we grew, up, grew all our ideas. We implemented some basic uh, marketing automation strategies for his gym and had some success there. And, you know, it, it was honestly just a little bit of casual market research where, you know, we started to see what was out there and what was cost effective for people. And we didn't really find a whole lot if they didn't want to build it themselves. And further, we didn't find, and this is the interesting part, like we didn't find any software that would allow someone to do what we wanted to do, which is like, I didn't set out to become a software company. That's the thing. Like I, I've been kind of like dragged into the software game, kicking and screaming. And now I love it. Can't have it back. But like, <laughs> it was a, it was kind of a reluctant entrance into building software because I really just wanted to, to work marketing strategy and use tools that already existed to build strategies that worked and deploy them to gyms and monetize it and have a, a nice little thing that I would do on my days off in the fire department. And, and so like we figured out that marketing automation was a void in the market, but then furthermore, the first real hurdle that we had was that none of the tools that were out there, none of these creator tools were built to scale the same strategy, the same marketing strategies over and over and over again. Like you had to go through the same setup process every single step for every single client, in our case, every single gym. So I mean, we had a, a guy who was working with us who's literally following like a 250 step checklist at one point to like implement every new account that we got. Cause we started out building this on other people's software and, uh, it's just kind of, kind of painful. And that was what kind of led us to build our own. But there's, so when you talk about like validating the idea, there is, there's an important part that I skipped over that I think is worth talking about. So we linked up with a, um, a business mentor, his name is Chris Cooper, um, runs a company called Two Brain Business and probably, in my opinion, the best, you know, micro gym business mentor in the space. And he brought Jake on his podcast very, very early on when we first started it. And we just ran like a little baby automation, right? Where we were literally just giving away content and for free. And then we were, we were like, hey, we'll build this automation for you for like a hundred bucks. And that was like our first market test. So I think like if you're trying to like distill this long-winded story into lessons, like make sure people are willing to give you their credit card as early as possible, right? Or like everyone will tell you they love your idea because no one like wants to be um, mean inherently. But like if they won't give you your credit card, they don't really like your idea, <laughs> or it's not really valuable. So uh, so we started with that offer, and like we sold ten of them, and I was like, that's cool, but it's like a manual process. And then we sold twenty of them, and then we sold sixty of them, and I was like, I have no idea how the hell I'm going to pull this off <laughs> because it was just like this super arduous process to build. And then you know it was a little hectic, but we got it done. But what we did along with that was we pre-sold subscriptions to this bigger software that was going to help people manage marketing automation for their whole gym. Didn't really exist yet, but that didn't stop us. We just pre-sold it to again validate the idea, and we pre-sold like sixty subscriptions at one hundred fifty bucks a month. We didn't actually build them; we just you know pre-authorized their card and 
but we use it as validation because there's a difference again between like someone saying, yeah, I'd buy this other thing or I'm going to put my credit card down and actually commit to it. So we, we try to do, um, you know, some market validation with actual purchase behavior pretty early on in the process. I say that now and it sounds really smart, but really we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just trying <laughs> to make sure people would buy our stuff. So, um, so that's kind of how it, we settled, you know, when we validated it through a couple of different hurdles and then we went and made it. So I got a ton of questions about everything that you just said. First Lay up, it on me. Let's do it. Yeah. First up, I know nothing <laughs> about gyms. I know nothing about how people with gyms market their businesses and find new customers. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through a little bit of the process that a gym owner might go through or that you were walking people through in these early days to help them market their business? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of different core models. And again, these don't really apply to what we call big box gyms like, you know, goals and anytime fitness. We really focus more on like this micro gym CrossFit-esque type model where you're doing either personal training or like small group classes that are led by a coach. So you know, your big box gyms, they make money off you not showing up is really <laughs> the uh, the story at the end of the day. But for these smaller, like independently owned and operated shops, there's really a couple of key ways that people will come in, right? So earlier on in the the micro gym industry, a lot of people would just start out by doing like a free class or a free week. And that was kind of when CrossFit and things like CrossFit were more of a grassroots movement. And then as the industry has kind of matured and become more mainstream, I would say that like the most generally accepted way that people will get a new person in the doors by doing something called a either a free consultation. A lot of people call it a no sweat intro, where it's really a consultative process. Because if you if you were to do a price comparison, right, between like a membership at Gold's might be thirty or forty or fifty bucks a month, and a membership at a CrossFit gym might be one hundred and fifty dollars a month, and the difference there is the coaching and the personal attention and the experience that you get. So we find it in in our spaces that the the highest performing gyms are the ones that take a very consultative approach to this. And so the the first step that a lot of these gyms do is this one on one consultation. They might sit you down and say, you know, hey, Corlin, like, what's your experience in fitness? What's your goal? What like why are you here? What brings you in? And then they'll be able to actually recommend one of their services or a combination of services that'll help you achieve your goal. And so that's the model that we like really really support and put our name behind because I think it's the one that kind of professionalizes the industry the most and and yields the strongest relationship with the new member. And so as far as like top of funnel activities, like people will do, you know, Facebook ads, do brand awareness, they'll run um, like referral campaigns with their current members. Some people will like do cold traffic and do like six week challenges, which are then um, like they'll go through a fitness challenge, which they then convert those people into an ongoing membership. So there's a few different, you know, permutations of approach that people will have. And our, our software kind of supports all of them, but we put a, an extra focus on that, that consultative approach for someone coming in. You talk about not wanting to be a software business at first and sort of being pulled that way against your will. Does that mean that your initial plan was that you guys wanted to be sort of a consulting shop and walk customers through their problems by hand? So we were building on on software that was already out there. We absolutely wanted to take more of a consultative approach because to me at that point, building software was just like this black box and I didn't really know how anything worked. Some days it still feels like that, honestly. <laughs> you know, and, and so like we started out building on other people's software and it was just kind of like a square peg round hole scenario, you know, where there were a couple of factors at play. Either we weren't using the software the way it was intended to be used. So we were hitting running into issues there. Or like if we found software that, you know, we like at one point we found um, some software that a company was developing that was supposed to work exactly what we needed it. But like 
they were trying to hit a lot of different industries at once. And so the things that we needed in their roadmap to allow us to be successful didn't always rise to the top. Again, like you, you heard me talk earlier about like leadership and accountability. We talk about accountability in our company a lot. And you know, anytime there's an issue that affects a customer, I, I will personally own the issue to the customer and I'll even do it publicly in our user group because that's just how I run a company. And so that was before we started writing software where like these third-party platforms, even if it wasn't our fault, like the customers are still paying us. So it's still our fault, even if there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, we kept having a lot of issues. It got to the point where I looked at Jake and I was like, hey man, like if we're going to look bad, like I at least want it to be my fault for real. Like, you know, I, like, I don't know if I can do better, but it's not going that great right now. So <laughs> I want to try. And, uh, and that was literally the infl- inflection point. It, it was out of frustration, but like one of these companies that we had worked with beforehand, they asked us when they were vetting us to like work with them. They're like, do you want to go be a software company? Like, are you going to work with us for a little while and then go build your own software? And I remember this, like it was yesterday. I told the guy, I said, I do not want to become a software company, but I believe in what we're doing and I will become a software company if I have to, I'd rather not. And now looking back, like I'm incredibly happy and, and grateful that we did because it's just allowing us to do things that, are in the best interest of our customers directly that nobody else is going to care about them as much as we do. So all worked out well. You ended up going to a coding boot camp. When did that happen? How did it go? And do you recommend that experience to others? Yeah, I um I had a great experience. So I um I went through a boot camp called the Firehose Project. I did not pick it because of the name, I promise. Um <laughs> But but there was a, a specific reason I picked it. I'm a very strong believer in anything I do in mentorship, you know, and and that has been since a since a very young age and early in in my career in the fire department. There were always mentors and guys that would you know teach me as a young firefighter and guys that I would look up to. And I wanted to try to emulate that experience um, with my education because like I I like I finished high school but I didn't love it. I made it through a year of college and bailed. So like I'm not like a big old school uh, school guy. <laughs> just to say it bluntly. And, and I really just like, again, it, to me, I'm a people person. And so like I needed that, that kind of one-on-one interaction in order to really engage. And so, so Firehose Project provided one-on-one mentorship with their program. And that, that was what, um, that was like the hook that made me think that there, theirs was a good idea above anyone else. So that was like right at, I guess, right around the inception of when we officially became uplaunch. Like we, when we officially like bailed on the consultative approach. You know, we had like, I think 15 or so gyms that were still with us from our, you know, foray into this on other people's software. And so we just kind of had them maintaining and we spent like six or seven months building an MVP. And so it started out very, very purpose-driven. Like I'm a, I'm kind of a no BS dude. I always cut right to the point. And so before I even enrolled in the bootcamp, I talked to the, uh, the CEO, Mara Marco, and I asked him, I was like, look, I'm here specifically for this one reason, because I need to build software to run this company. Like I'm not trying to do like a hundred, you know, to-do list apps. Like I need to find some stuff that's going to let me do exactly what I need to do. Are you down with that? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, so for like my capstone project, I could just work on my own thing. Right. He's like, yep, you're good. And so it was cool because he let me kind of just align, you know? And so like I learned the basics, but the thing that happened in there that was much more transformative than me learning to be a software engineer. And I don't want to like insult other software engineers by throwing that word around. But like I, I met the guy who would eventually is essentially a co-founder and our CTO in that bootcamp. 
you know, and I, like we had like little office hour sessions and I was working on something that was kicking my butt. And I was like, Hey, I got some interesting stuff here. Like if anybody wants to come check it out with me. <laughs> and, uh, so he hit me up and he's like, what you got going on? And, uh, and that was it, man. And so we just, uh, you know, he, he dove in and we just worked and worked and worked. And it was just like this incredible working relationship. And we just started building and like that dude walked the dog on me on software engineering, which is great. It's exactly what I needed. That's kind of how the software took shape is from that relationship that started in that, in that code school. That sounds so great because so many would be founders are stuck in this place where they're like, not sure if they should learn to code. They're not sure they'll be able to find time to do that. And you had a boot camp that was like, hey, you can do your startup and learn to code and work on your startup as part of learning how to code. And so it sort of fit perfectly into what you're doing. Yeah, and I'll tell you, man, I don't do a lot of coding now. And, and it's really just because that everybody I'm, I've been able to hire is just way better at it than me, which is obviously the goal. But like in the context of a founder who's considering whether or not they should learn to code, like if that's a blocker, like go do it if you can. Like if you have the aptitude and you have the means to go do it, like just the the momentum that we were able to gain off of like an extremely basic MVP that I coded, I don't know, at least probably 40% of with Matt doing the all the hard stuff. But like the momentum we were able to gain off of that was incredible. And yeah, now they're, you know, half the code in the software uh, is way out of my league because Matt and, you know, another guy, Jake, who we just brought on different Jake are, um, you know, there's like, that, that's their focus. They're incredible at it. But especially in the, like the formative months of just trying to get something out there to validate your idea. Like, Oh my gosh, like learning to code was just incredible because it let me move so much faster. Um, you know, to just get, get the idea out there and bring it to life. You talk about not enjoying high school, about dropping out of college after a year, but then on the other hand, you're talking to me about top of funnel marketing analysis, <laughs> validating your idea, learning how to code. What changed? How did you become such an effective learner? Um, pertinence to my life goals. Seriously, like that's that's all it is. Is it's it's not that I don't enjoy learning. I have a constant thirst for learning that I am unable to to turn off. It's like the snotty little kid in algebra class. When am I ever going to use this? Like that was me, man. Um, <laughs> you know, and there, there's definitely some stuff where, you know, you don't think you're going to use it. And then like when we learned like all the different algorithms in code school about like, you know, flipping all the zeros to ones to make a picture and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, whatever. But then like I built, we, we built a scheduling app and you talk about like having to, to figure out, you know, how to algorithmically like calculate availability slots for booking appointments and stuff. It, it all became clear, but I'm just the kind of person where if I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm out. I'll just go find a different tunnel. Like it's just, I don't have the attention span for like, you know, I'm going to do two years of general education because someone says I'm supposed to, and then I'll go learn the stuff that I care about. That's just, I don't have the attention span for it. So it's really what it came down to is I wanted to build a business. I, the, the appeal to me of a boot camp is that, you can go learn just what you want to learn. You know, like you don't have to take a English class to go learn JavaScript. You just go learn JavaScript. So that, that's the difference for me. That was always the most frustrating part of school for me too, taking all these classes that I didn't want to take that I didn't care that much about. I mean, I was considering dropping right. out of college after my junior year because I figured I had all the skills to get a job. I'd already worked an internship and was getting paid. Why <laughs> did I need to learn this other stuff? Right. Yeah, Totally. So you learned how to code. You contributed a lot to this initial product, this MVP that you guys built that helped you guys gain a lot of momentum in the early days. I want to discuss what this momentum looked like and how you found your first customers. 
You talked about doing a podcast promo early on. Was that your first foray into getting customers to actually pay for what you guys were building? Yeah, absolutely it was. So that that was the those were the first dollars that we ever collected was selling that one little automation through the podcast and the pre-sales that came along with it. And man, it's interesting. Like there there were just so many like tweaks and iterations to the business model like so many I don't know, hard lessons. I could stand there for hours and, and paint a picture of all the different lessons that we learned the hard way. But like, yeah, initially it was just word of mouth. You know, I think the advantage of of really having a narrow focus to begin with as far as your market goes, you know, having a niche or whatnot um, is that, I mean, like you look at the CrossFit market, that's the that's kind of our beachhead market. There's like 12,000 of them. And it's just a pretty finite market opportunity when you when you think about it. And yeah, we're not going to stay restricted to that market forever. But when you're trying to start, like, you know, it's like the old saying, right? If you're selling to everybody, you're not selling to anybody. Like, you got to be able to, you know, provide that authentic product. And, you know, people are buying from you as a person at the end of the day, not like, yeah, your product has to not suck. And, <laughs> you know, your business has to be solvent. But at the end of the day, like, if they, if they get on a phone call and think you're full of it, you're not making the sale. And so I think just, you know, Jake being a successful gym owner in that space and being able to run these sales calls very early on and relate to the exact problems that both he and the customer were having at the same time, you know, word spread pretty quickly about, about the solution that we had, but, but it definitely has not been up all into up into the right the whole time. I mean, we, we went up into the right for a little bit and literally plateaued for like a year before we, um, before we made some changes. So hasn't all been a hasn't all been smooth. Tell me about that plateau. Where were you guys at in, in terms of revenue when you hit it, and what was it like trying to figure out how to get out of that that funk? Yeah, so the biggest issue was was our our business model in general. <laughs> Small issue, right? So what we try, <laughs> yeah, just our uh, biggest issue model. was the business. No, so what we tried to do is like initially we had this consultative approach, and we were just doing the stuff for gyms, and we're cool. And then once we made the pivot and said, hey, we're going to become a software company. Like we wanted to build this platform because it's a, it's a it's an easy lift when you look at it skin deep, right? Where you're like, oh well, this works for gyms. It could work for other businesses. It could work for chiropractors. It could work for yoga studios. It could work for this. It could work for that. And so, you know, kind of the same mistake we made at the coffee shop where we just decided we're going to go do all this stuff. We were going to essentially try to bootstrap our way into a straight up like marketplace. Play, right? So two-sided marketplace, we're going to go find partners to be the subject matter experts the way we were with the CrossFit stuff. And then those partners are going to go do all the sales and we'll set up revenue share agreements. And like we built this beautiful plan on paper that felt great. And we even went so far, we, we brought on a partner to replace what we were doing with CrossFit. Um, and he's still part of our team, even though that whole partner model has been... Um, you know, put to, put to bed, put out to pasture. But like, so we brought a guy named Mike who another really successful gym owner, really strong marketing background, MBA, like super solid guy. And basically brought him in as the partner. He was our essentially test to like get a first partner up and running. But the success of that business model hinged on us doing that like 10 more times. And we just successfully did it zero more times. (laughs) And so we, um, as far as the MRR plateau, we were plateaued right around, I think, 18, but we were on a on a revenue split, so more like 10. And we sat there and sat there and sat there. And so, you know, again, going back to the value of like mentorship and having people who are more experienced than you to be a sounding board, 
you know, someone guy we met during this experience, a guy named uh, Kevin Kirkland, he actually runs a, a startup called Sunny. It's like a personal CRM, uh, which is super cool. But you know, he's always been a great sounding board for us. And I kind of hit him up, and he had some familiarity with our approach. And I was like, man, like we're pounding the pavement. We're going to all these conferences. We're like having all these meetings. And it was exactly what I mentioned before, Cortland. We're like, everyone's like, yeah, I love what you're doing, but nobody had the follow through to get up to speed and work with us to ship a product and and become the channel partner. And Kevin broke it down real simple. He said, Matt, how long have you been trying? And I said, uh, four and a half months. And he said, great. In a startup, four and a half months is an eternity. Try something else tomorrow. And I was like, oh, fine. <laughs> like, you can just break it down like that. It's pretty simple. And he couldn't have been any more correct. And so, uh, so it was a hard pivot. I mean, we, we essentially went to our partner who we brought in in the CrossFit space, acquired his company, brought him in to head up customer success, brought everything back under one roof, trimmed all the fat off the steak and said, we're going to go back to doing what we know we're good at, which is helping gym owners build better businesses and deliver a world-class client experience. And we had the subject matter expertise in-house, brought everything back in. Jake went back to doing sales just like he did in the old days, um, except now we were doing it on our own software platform. And uh, that's when things stopped plateauing and started growing. So That's fascinating. So you're basically working on a winning business strategy. You got excited about something that had maybe more potential but couldn't make it work. And then you went back to what you're doing at first that was growing and that's where you are today. Yep, you got it, man. Let's talk about this first phase because before you even got stuck, you were making, you said, 10 or 18K monthly revenue, which is right. no small feat, especially in the time frame that you did it in. What were some of yeah. the most important things you guys did to grow your revenue that much so quickly? At risk of sounding like a cliche, everything that doesn't scale. Now, to be specific, it's all about relationships, right? I mean, we preach relationships with our software, but like relationships with your early customers it is crucial. Like, speaking to them, listening to them, talking with them frequently. Um, you know, we leverage our Facebook user group very, very frequently to do everything from, you know, live feeds and delivering good information to just like calling people up and talking to them. But I think getting customers involved in like your journey as a company and the evolution of the software, like actually asking them what they think and listening to them and, you know, making sure that you're solving their problem. I think having the relationship um, was key because like to put it bluntly, they put up with a lot of, uh, you know what from us <laughs> early on, because we were literally figuring out how to be a software company. And like, we, we never gave it away free, you know, like our price was lower, but we always charged for it because it's something I believe in. Like if, if, if they're not going to give you money, then the value prop isn't compelling. So they definitely tolerated a lot. Like we have a few of those, like I was joking, call them like our the up launch OGs. Um, <laughs> but I mean, they're, they're still with us and they're incredible brand advocates, but like, we wouldn't be here without those guys. And so I think having really strong personal relationships with your early adopters, I can't overstate the importance of that. That's what kept us alive. It's so tempting, especially for a lot of software engineers who want to build a business and start selling it and never talk to anybody. And so people right. build these marketing first businesses where they never really talk to their customers. They don't get to know them and wonder why no one is using their sort of half-baked early product. It sounds like you guys had a much more high-touch sales-based approach. I got a couple of questions about that. Number one, what was your business model in terms of how much you were charging these early customers? And number two, what are some challenges that you encountered while doing all these sales that you learned how to overcome? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so on our earliest iteration, we were charging $150 a month. That was when we were still doing it all ourselves on um, other people's software. And we eventually bumped it up to 200 uh, We weren't really getting too many price objections at that price point. You know, the, the value prop of our software is it replaces a number of other SaaS subscriptions that a typical gym owner is using and then saves them a bunch of time on top of it. So there's a pretty, you know, decent comparison we can do there. And then once we went to the partner-based approach, we bumped it up to 300 uh, Honestly, it was just straight unit, unit economics. If we were going to be on the rev share, we had to make enough to, to live, you know, for the company to live. I don't even, not even for us to live. We were basically working for free at that point, uh, which is fun. You know, so the price kind of kept going up and up and up. Um, it's, it's settled at 300 That's where That's where it lives right now. Um, hasn't moved since. And then I think as far as like challenges with that process... I think the biggest part is, especially if you don't have good alignment between like your story and the pain of your customers, like if you're not really able to like well articulate the pain point that you're solving for, it's tough to, it's tough to make the sale, especially if you're not proven, you know, I mean, we were, like I said, we pre-sold 60 before it even existed. It was literally Jake having a conversation about like, here's the stuff that makes my head hurt about my gym. Does your head hurt too? Yes. Okay, great. We're going to go build this thing. And so really just being able to relate to the pain, like what we um, were part of a, a mentoring group called SAS Academy with a guy named Dan Martell. And a lot of it's just like rock solid sales and marketing playbooks. And one of the biggest things he always pushes on us is like your product has to be a painkiller, not a vitamin, right? Like you skip a day taking a vitamin, you're going to be all right. Um, you know, you skip a day taking a painkiller when you're in pain and you feel the pain and you go take your painkiller. You know, and so I think just being able to to truly relate to whatever the customer has going on, and like if you can't figure that out, you might be building the wrong thing. Like just real talk, you know, like you, you've got to be solving a legitimate problem um, that someone's willing to trade their money in order to make the problem go away. That's it's business that it's uh, <laughs> at its most fundamental. I'm listening to you talk about how you learn from your mentors, how you learn from your customers. And it just makes me think about all the people who haven't gotten started because they feel like they have to learn a whole bunch of stuff before they take the first step. Yet here you were learning all of the stuff on the job. What do you think were some of the more effective sources of learning for you that gave you the most bang for your buck? There were a couple. I think the first phase, because I don't want to just like give someone advice they can't take action on. So I think it depends on what stage in your business you're in. So the, the first phase of it was just by doing it, like just not overthinking it. And doing it and understanding that you're probably going to suck at whatever you're doing for a while and being too stubborn to fail. You know, uh, we, we really talk a lot culturally in our business about like failure is not an option. And I don't mean that, you know, things like that get taken out of the context we use it in, I think, in, in tech in this industry right now, because that doesn't mean like it's one of these super toxic work all every weekend, like meet your metrics or you're fired. Like that that's couldn't be further from the kind of company we run. We work very deliberately to build a, a calm company culture that's healthy for people to work in. But all, on the way on this journey, you know, going from part-time to full-time and, you know, a business model that wasn't growing at all for almost a year, like we had every opportunity to quit and didn't because we believed in what we were doing. But like when I say failure is not an option, people misconstrue that. They think you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again until it works. Like that couldn't be further from the truth. Like you just have to keep trying different versions of what you believe in that are hopefully backed up by actual evidence or, you know, conversations with real people until you figure out what's going to work. Um, so it's like micro failures 
power the the high level success at the end of the day. So to directly answer the question, the first thing was just kind of the school of hard knocks. Like we're going to try a bunch of different stuff and we're going to figure out what feels right for our customers and for us and try to focus on that. Once we had a little bit of traction, I'll tell you, joining that um, SaaS Academy group was massive for us. It was an investment. Like it's not a it's not a free thing. It's not like a casual weekend meetup. You know, it's a um, you know Dan, the guy who runs it, is a very successful founder. He's you know three like VC backed companies, couple exits, like super legit. Is incredible instructor. So I joined that, and, and it was. I'll tell you, like one of the times I've been most proud of the team because like we were still doing the partner thing at that point. We were still broke as broke can be. And I asked my team, like everyone just throw in some cash so I could go sign up for this thing. And every single person did it without blinking, which was like amazing and humbling for me as a leader. And so I I signed up for that program and they, you know, we do like three in-person events per year. The first one was in Toronto two days after I signed up just randomly. So I'm like, all right, well, go take action, dude. <laughs> Hopped on a plane and went. And it was like, a, it was like getting punched in the face, Cortland, honestly, because I was learning like all these incredible like marketing strategies. And I realized that our business model was going to let me implement precisely none of them because <laughs> we were doing all the sales <laughs> through these partners. Right. And I'm like, I'm looking around the room and I said, all right, like I am the lowest paid person in this room, both at an individual level and at a company level. And I'm the only one doing things differently. So there's probably one person in this room who's not being that smart right now. And it's probably me. So like that was just like a smack in the face with reality. And so we, that, that was like the, what, that and the conversation with Kevin that I mentioned earlier were like the two catalysts that happened in close proximity to one another where I said, all right, I came home from Toronto and I said, Jake, we're changing the business model. I'm done. Um, and he's like, all right, dude, I got your back. Let's go. And uh, that's when we talked with Mike and bought all the businesses under one roof. And we spent that entire period between that meetup and the one four months later, literally like rebuilding our business internally, you know, figuring out what jobs everyone was going to do, making a new website, proceduralizing and writing systems and like the whole nine yards. And like we didn't have a big jump in MRR during that period. We were still right around 20. And then once everybody got settled in their roles, uh, like September last year, it, uh, I don't know, all the puzzle pieces kind of clicked and, and just kind of started taking off. Can you give me an example of one of the strategies that you learned that you were able to implement with Uplaunch and really turn things around? Sure. Um, so, I mean, gosh, like the most basic things, like the the partners in our old business model were doing all of the sales, like they owned the funnel, right? And we were just like the the co-branded tech implementers behind the scenes. So, I mean, anything from content marketing strategies to building an effective lead magnet to using that to fill a demo funnel. Like the only way I could implement that stuff is if I took it and then like retaught it to the partners and hoped that they would implement it right. And like Mike could have, you know, the, the one partner that was successful. But the problem is that in that model, the partner's world is very resource limited, right? Because they're essentially in that, in that model, those partners were generally solopreneurs who weren't making enough to hire somebody else to help them. But like if we went in and did all this stuff for them, then it was so much work and effort and time that the revenue share stopped making sense. So it was kind of like no, but neither party was properly resourced to take action on any of this stuff. And so like from our standpoint, without any visibility into the into the funnel, without any visibility into the demo process, without any visibility into customer support, like 
all of those things were on the partner. And so, yeah, like that, that's a, a beautiful example. It's like Dan has a killer framework for building the lead magnet and that's great, but like we weren't doing the selling. So I could, what am I building lead magnet for? You know? And so it's just, it's one basic example of all of these different things. And at the end of the day, the catalyst was like, I need to own the funnel. You know, I need to be able to, to drive deal flow in our business and be able to, to make these tweaks and pull these levers to, to make it more efficient. You're coming into this whole startup tech world as kind of an outsider. I mean, you obviously did not get a computer science degree. You were not reading about startups and tech your entire life. I think that gives you a fresh perspective that others who are more like me might not have. What are some things that you believe that others and the startup scene don't? That is an outstanding question. Man, there's so much. I think that uh, growth is interesting. Let's talk about growth. You look at a lot of companies that take money, right? That go the traditional VC route. And like, don't get me wrong, like venture capital builds, you know, great businesses. There's probably also a lot of them that are, uh, you know, crash and burned along the way on that route. And so I think that that's interesting from the standpoint of like, as an outsider, you know, like, like take you way back in my roots, like as a firefighter, guy works a side job, starts a painting business, has two or three guys painting for him. It's making some decent money. Like, Hey, that's solid. That's a cool business. You know, I don't know many VCs that are going to go fund a couple of painters, but, but the point is, is like success can look like a lot of different things depending on the lens that you're viewing it through. Right. And so like for us, the way I look at up launch, a more deliberate growth strategy makes sense to me. Right. So if you compare what we do to other marketing automation tools, they're just that they're tools, essentially commodities, right? Where like they're a blank slate and you can go build a strategy for pest control or, you know, chiropractors or yoga studios or you know, info marketers or whatever. Like our differentiator in our market is that we go deeper because we have subject matter expertise on staff. We provide a true end to end solution. So like the growth at all costs approach may not work for us, you know, because it's tough to scale that type of depth in 15 more verticals simultaneously, you know, because what would happen is the the product wouldn't go as deep. It wouldn't be the true end to end solution. And then we'd be in a feature war with, you know, hundred million dollar companies building the next widget. And so like for us, I try to take a more deliberate approach on like, I want to go demolish this market, right? Beachhead market. And maybe, maybe we take some money, maybe we don't, but even if we don't like this market, we'll fund the next one where I can go hire the right person to make sure we can go equally as deep on the next market and so on and so forth. Maybe we only work in five or six or 10 verticals down the road and there's, you know, a hundred other ones that we ignore, but we'll dominate those 10, right? So like, that's not a traditional growth strategy. It's one that made sense to me in isolation. But like when I compare that to companies that go the traditional venture route and it's like growth at all costs, you know, go get a series A and triple your staff. It's just a, it's a different mindset. And that, so that was one thing that I think might be kind of an, an anti-pattern or kind of a contrarian viewpoint. I don't know, but it was, I don't know. It wasn't even on my radar until I started thinking about raising money and then realized kind of uh, some of the cultural stuff that comes along with it. Yeah, that is not at all a common viewpoint among the founders of stereotypical high growth Silicon Valley startups. What are some things you think the typical tech company could stand to learn from a company of firemen? Because I assume you guys have a totally different way of organizing yourselves, a different culture, different norms, et cetera. I was hoping you'd ask something like that. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot out there, right, um, in in the tech world today, specifically, and I think a lot of the conversations that are going on right now 
need to happen um, around like workplace culture and around treating people from different backgrounds with respect and, you know, gosh, around like so many different things. Jake and I work very, very deliberately on taking all the best parts of the culture of the fire department and making sure that our company embodies them in the tech world, right? And so I think that there's a lot, you know, like what are those best parts? We Yeah, exactly. Right. So so we have like a, a pretty well defined set of ethos and not all of them for uplaunch and not all of them come from the fire department, but some of the ones that do personal and team accountability is a really, really big one for us. Like I mentioned, if we have a bug, like I'll call the customer and literally apologize to them for it. And yeah, that doesn't make us unique. There's other co- there's other companies that do that. But but the point is like even within our team, like when there's an issue, the way our culture is, like everyone rushes to own it and say, hey, it was my fault or I could have done X and everyone rushes to fix it. It's not never like the flip of that, which is, oh, well, that's Cortland's job. You know, Cortland works in product. I'm over here in engineering. He wrote a bad spec. So like, sorry, dude, I just built what he told me. <laughs> like there's companies where that's a real conversation. And like that doesn't exist in our world. Like the dedication to supporting each other is is massive. You know, like if in the fire department, if a, if a guy in your firehouse needs to move, like you don't hire movers, you get 12 firemen to come over and have a pizza and drink a beer and carry your bookcases, you know, and you just help each other. And so, you know, we really just, we try to, to bring that supportive environment in as best we can and make sure that we're all here for each other in whatever way possible. And then, you know, the other side of this is there were some things about the fire department culture that we didn't want to bring over, like, you know, baseline 60 hour work weeks and being away from your family for a third of your life for 25 years at a time. And so we work very hard to, you know, run an outcome driven business and have outcome driven leadership styles and management styles. So that way, you know, it's not about like clocking in, where were you at 3 PM Cortland? Why weren't, why wasn't your little light on Slack green? It looked great to me. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm out, you know, like there's just, we got to treat people like adults, treat them as the, the experts that they are. And we try to just hire the best people we can who have the, you know, we lead with trust and hopefully have the the company's best interest at heart. So, so yeah. You've gone from reading a ton of startup advice, trying to learn how to break into this world to coming on the Indiacus podcast and sharing your story and your advice with other founders who look up to you. How does it feel to be on the other side of things? Crazy. I don't feel like I'm on the other side of things. There's a thing I like, I just want to go learn from the next person. It's perpetual, but it is interesting. Like to hear you say that I don't, I'm not good at stopping what is it stop to smell the flowers or whatever right that's just not really how how i operate and so it's it's kind of it's a cool question to be asked i've never considered that to be perfectly honest with you so yeah i guess it feels cool but i mean really it's not to me about like oh i'm on this podcast like look at me like if there if there's someone out there who thinks i can help like oh my gosh hit me up like there's so many dozens if not hundreds of people who have helped me when they absolutely didn't have to didn't get anything from it like if i can pay that forward to somebody i'm in let's do it you talk a lot about about how other people play a role in your business. You talk a lot about happenstance, happenstance with you becoming a fireman, with you becoming a startup founder. What do you think in your journey is not luck? What do you think has been the most under your control? Work ethic, hands down. You know, I think that there are a lot of things in life that are not under our control. Um, and I think the only thing that we can control in a lot of cases is the way that we react to things that happen to us. But 
part of that reaction, I think, is how hard you work to change the parts of your life you don't like. So that, that without a doubt, I think is, you know, like everyone talks about like, oh, what's your one superpower? Like mine is, is just like grit, man. Like, you know, I, Jake and I talk about that frequently. Like I had every chance to say like, oh, this sucks. I'm going to go back to my like secure job, you know, in the fire department where I've got a pension and I'm going to go to work and it's all planned out. But um, at the end of the day, I, I don't think it's about like being smarter than everyone around you because I'm not. I think it's about working harder than everyone around you, which I, I try really hard to do. So yeah, that's, that's my answer right there. I'm a big believer in optimism. I think that optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe that you can do it and you think things are going to work, then you're not going to quit. And you're obviously a very optimistic, self-confident guy. Where does that come from? How does someone build up that self-confidence? Man, I wish I knew. It's funny because outwardly, you know, my wife says this to me all the time. She's like, you're this extrovert. And I'm like, no, I, I don't feel like one at all. I don't, uh, at all. But, um, and, and it's the same thing with confidence. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm confident in the sense that, you know, we have a direction, we've made some decisions, but I think it's, it doesn't mean that like confident to a fault. I think that, uh, you know, especially lately, there's, there's been a lot of things that like, keep me up at night or that I think about, about the business or we making the right decision is the product heading the right way. Like, you know, there's a, there's a million scenarios, man, where I can picture up launch crashing and burning tomorrow. Right. And there's like two or three where I'm like, Oh yeah, we're rock stars. And that's every business and every stage is the reality. Right. And so I, I think part of it is just like, if you, I, I have like naturally pessimistic internal monologues, but I just try to keep them there, you know, as internal monologues, because that doesn't benefit everyone. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy and especially leading a team. Like I, I can't get on a weekly call with, you know, 10 coworkers and be like, Oh, here's the 17 different doomsday scenarios that I stayed <laughs> up all night last night thinking about. <laughs> How do you guys feel about those? You know, <laughs> doesn't exactly inspire confidence. So, so at the end of the day, like, you know, I, I define the fire department as making permanent decisions based on incomplete data sets. Like, guess what? It's the same thing in, in a startup, right? Like you don't have all the facts, but you have to make decisions, some of them permanent decisions. So you just have to make the best decision you can and go with it. And so I think that's just kind of what happens is you just can't be scared to make a decision because I think people will just generally perseverate over them too much. And sometimes the opportunity can pass you by. So speaking of making permanent decisions with incomplete data sets, I know a lot of people who have seemingly every advantage in the book. They are career software developers. They read a lot about startups. They essentially have all the skills they need to have a real shot at starting something of their own. And they're really interested in doing so, but they don't because taking that initial leap is scary. What if you fail? What if it doesn't work out? What's your advice for how people can get over that hump and get started? Hmm. It's a good question, uh, Coraline. I, I don't know that there's one answer that'll fit everybody. I don't know. I don't want to sound like a Nike shoe commercial, but like, just go do it. Just try it. Like, I think is the biggest thing. And I think that it's important to realize too, that there's different degrees of like doing it. You know, it doesn't mean that oh, I'm going to go, you know, quit my job and go move into a, you know, a closet in San Francisco that cost me 10 grand a month and like live with seven of my friends and go do all the stuff and, you know, whatever. Like you don't have to go from zero to that. You can just like try some things and try to validate some ideas. But I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like it's a, it's a relatively simple formula. I'd love to listen to this in five years and still see if I still agree with myself, but 
at the end of the day, like if you have a, a market of a suitable size and a decent percentage of those people who are willing to give you money to solve their problem and you think you can actually solve it, then generally you have a business. Um, and so I, I think it's, you know, you can validate that hypothesis without, you know, setting your whole life on fire. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and once you have a reasonable degree of confidence, yeah, there's still going to be a little bit of a gut check moment, but you just got to jump in and go for it or else you'll never know. I, I guess the other thing, um, just to real talk is like, even if people have every advantage, like not everyone's cut out for this. Like there are a lot of things that I worry about a lot, especially since we really had a team and there are people who like depend on my decision making to be able to like feed their kids, <laughs> you know, it's, it's weight, man, it's real weight. And so the other reality is, is that even if everyone, you know, like the smartest guy with the smartest degree and all the experience knows 10 programming languages and MBA, like you look great on paper, but it, some people just don't have the personalities that are able to handle that. That's just the reality. And so like, if, if you're not that, if you're that person that, that can't, can't hang with that kind of weight, then maybe you, uh, maybe you don't start a business. Well, you, Matt are definitely that type of person. I've enjoyed having you on the podcast, getting to know your story. And I really think it'll inspire a lot of people who are wondering if they come from the right sort of background to start a startup. And the answer is it doesn't really matter. As long as you put the work in, you can get there. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Uplaunch and also what's going on in your personal life as well if you share that sort of thing online? Yeah, absolutely. So that is a 2019 goal for me is to become more transparent, especially with a company, but also just really in general. And I haven't really taken good action on it yet. So hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, maybe I'll have gotten my act together. So for the business, we're just at uplaunch.com. Uh, super easy. You can get me on Twitter uh, at Matt Verlak, V-E-R-L-A-Q-U-E. It's a really weird last name. So have to figure out how to spell that one, but I am active on there and um, Matt at uplaunch.com. Someone wants to drop an email. That's it. I'm wide open. So, I mean, if there's anything I can answer for anybody or anybody that can help in, in any possible way, um, you kind of got my wheels turning, Portland, when you asked me that question earlier. So, but if there's anything I can do for anyone to pay it forward, um, please don't hesitate to hit me up. It's not like an idle statement. I truly mean it. All right. Thanks so much, Matt, for offering all your help and sharing your time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cortland. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.